Now, I finished Ezra up last time, and uh, the commentaries say that Nehemiah used to be called Ezra II, uh, and was Ezra II until probably 200 A.D., and some of the scholars recognized that Nehemiah indeed had written most of the book, perhaps his scribe had written part of it, but uh, it was so closely connected with the book of Ezra that they called it Ezra II. So in terms of what we've been discussing these past weeks, I thought we should continue into the book of Nehemiah in that the end time story and the prophecies, I speak now of Isaiah 44 and 45 among others, indicate that the foundation of the temple must be laid and that Jerusalem must be built. Ezra dealt with the temple, and Nehemiah deals with the walls of Jerusalem itself. And it isn't just the wall. Let's do a brief uh, review back in Daniel 9. I think we finally perhaps understand Daniel 9. They've written volumes and volumes on it, and all kinds of philosophies and uh, so on have been given. I'm not going to go into this in the same detail I did in Ezra. Uh, you remember I might have, you might remember that I said I was getting a bit ahead of the story and in going into Daniel 9 in the book of Ezra because Daniel 9 is dealing with Jerusalem itself and Ezra is dealing with the temple. <clears throat> so, uh, it still applies, and they are very closely linked there in the last verse of uh, Isaiah 44 anyway, of the two having to be accomplished <clears throat> in a Cyrus from the world, an unconverted man having something to do with helping God's people, the church, do the things that God wants done. So remember the context here in Daniel 9, that Daniel was concerned that after the 70 years of captivity, uh, and God having scattered the Jews and made the area of Judah uh, desolate, or the sanctuary desolate anyway, in verse 17 of Daniel 9, he prayed. He prayed for the city and the people that are called by your name in verse 19. And we know that Daniel, the book of Daniel, has been written for us here and even sealed up so that we might understand it until the end time, which we are in. He prayed about the sins of himself and the people. <clears throat> and then an angel came to give him understanding and told him at the end of verse 23, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. And then he shows that 70 weeks are determined upon your people. Daniel's people in this end time refers to us refers to the church in the end time. This concludes with the abomination of desolation being set up at the end of this particular prophecy of 70 weeks. And Matthew 24 speaks of the abomination of desolation as a time to flee to the place of safety. And Matthew 24 is very, very clearly an end time prophecy that Christ gave because it concludes by talking about the great tribulation that comes at the time the abomination of desolation is set up and the day of the Lord would come immediately after the three and a half years of tribulation. So <clears throat> these things are tied together as an end time 
prophecy. I know there have been many, many theories about uh, 490 years and a suspended time at the end with three and a half years of this and three and a half years of that and on and on. And indeed, there may be uh, a historical fulfillment of that and of Christ coming to the earth. But I do believe now that this is speaking of 70 specific individual weeks at the end. If this is something that begins and does the things that it says it is going to do, then 70 weeks are determined upon us. And we certainly don't have 490 years left. I don't believe that for a moment. Nor do I believe that we're waiting for the last seven years of this 69 that it's been suspended. I believe that it's 70 literal weeks in the final fulfillment of this. And that these, <clears throat> this is determined upon your people, not just on God's people, but upon the holy city. So upon Jerusalem. We are Jerusalem, and yet there is a Jerusalem without walls that will be built, and perhaps one of those villages of Zechariah 2 will be in the original spot that the original Jerusalem was in. We do have quite a little circumstantial evidence now and quite a few scriptures that are adding up to show that the original Jerusalem is now desolate. And the one in the Middle East is not. Well, it's not been proved. No actual physical hard evidence has been produced. And we will wait and see if that does occur. However, these scriptures do have to do with the end time and they do have to do with a Cyrus that says that the foundation of the temple must be laid and the Jerusalem must be built. And this prophecy has to do with it. So transgression is going to be wiped away. We saw that before. And sins be bottled up or restrained. And to make reconciliation for iniquity, we've seen in prophecies that Christ is going to forgive our sins and turn his face back to us in one day. So it's going to be a very specific time. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. Our righteousness will be of him, it says in Isaiah 54, the end of the chapter. And that once we are concluded as righteous and come back under his grace and favor here at the end time, we, it will never again be removed. So it will go right from there on into the millennium and through the kingdom of God forevermore. To seal up the vision and profit and to anoint the most holy, and that is not in the original Hebrew, and to anoint, period. It might refer to the most holy ones or the ones that are supposed to carry out the work of God at the end. It does not need to apply to Christ himself here, as people have said in the past. That is not in there. So he says, these are the goals and purposes that will come on God's people and upon Jerusalem at the end. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto, <clears throat> again, the anointed, and it does not necessarily mean Messiah the Prince, the ones who translated this also decided to interpret it, and that is not in there. Strong's 4899 anointed. 
shall be seven weeks, and then threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, or the breach, or the ditch, or the moat, even in troublous times. So Jerusalem is going to be built. It's going to be a time of great trouble, and it has to be done, apparently in this period of time. <clears throat> and after threescore and two weeks shall the anointed be cut off, or and it says, but not for himself, or cut off without anything. And we know that when we have to flee, we leave with nothing. And this context leads down to that very flight. So everything that has been built up will have to be abandoned, and it will be cut off. There will be nothing left. We will go with the shirt that is on our back and not even go back into the house after anything. Uh... And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the city will be built up, and then it will be destroyed along with the sanctuary and the temple. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, hearkening to Revelation 12, and unto the end of the war, the great tribulation, three and a half years, desolations are determined. Remember Revelation 11 says that the beast will trample the sanctuary for 42 months. That's three and a half years or 1,260 days. And it will be desolate during that time. He shall confirm the covenant, that is the prince that comes, with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease and the overspreading of abominations, or by it he shall make it desolate. So, during the middle of that last week, the abomination of desolation will be set up. Now, who is this covenant made with? I want to review that, too, briefly. We go to Daniel 11, and I think it tells us right here in the context, because this is talking about that prince. Uh, we have the back and forth with the king of the north and the king of the south, Uh, it says here, he'll return to his land with great riches after they have a conference at one table and lie to each other and do exploits, I'm in verse 28, and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south. Uh, I think that the place that God will use is in the south, but there are going to be those who oppose him and he'll have great indignation against the Holy Covenant. So this man is going to be very set against the church. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Now if he returns at the end of this 69 weeks and Jerusalem has been being built during that 69 weeks, he's going to be very upset. And who is it that he talks with? just as he returns, and just before the abomination. You'll see here in the context in just a moment that this is speaking of the same abomination of desolation. Who does he talk to? Remember back in Daniel 9, he'll, he'll confirm the covenant with many for one week. He's going to make an agreement. Well, we find here in chapter 11 that when he comes back to his own land, apparently from this area, that he will have intelligence with 
those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He is going to go to those who are willing to forsake God's way and make a deal with it. He'll go to those who have perhaps already forsaken it. Perhaps the dregs or the leaving, the leaving or the remnant of worldwide, as well as other organizations. In other words, people who have known God here at the end. He's going to look them up. He's going to make a deal with them. And then immediately it says, and arms or the military shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. So he immediately makes some kind of a communication or deal with those who forsake the truth, and then he will come against those who abide by the truth and destroy the sanctuary and the city, make it desolate, and that's the time that Matthew 24 tells us we must flee. And he does it in the middle of the week, we're told in Daniel 9. So the middle of the 70th week. So he's made a deal with them. Perhaps there's a week that they've set up to destroy all of God's people that are faithful. And that's the deal they cut. And those who have forsaken may betray those who have not forsaken. Remember Matthew 24 also says that we'll betray one another because the love of many will wax cold because of iniquity. So, apparently he makes a deal with ex-Church of God people, those who are willing to give it up and to give their own brethren up. I would say then, <clears throat> but that probably that happens in the middle of the 69th or the middle of the 70th week that leaves three and a half days the abomination is set up in the middle of the week and then you have three and a half days to get to a place of safety if you're not there by then it's too late the end of 70 weeks it all has to be accomplished remember this is about God's people didn't we read that at the beginning of this prophecy? It's not about Arabs. It's not about anybody but God's people and God's city. It's not about Indians or Asians or uh, anybody but the true church. Daniel's people. And indeed, it seems that this individual, probably the little horn of Daniel 8 and 9 and 11, same man, will make a deal with those who are willing to turn in their brothers. And then they'll come to destroy that which has been built here at the end time. Remember that Jerusalem has to be built and the wall in troublous times. All right, with that background then, and we understand, and us understanding that there is a Cyrus coming, and he will help God's people, and that he will say that the temple foundation has to be laid and Jerusalem has to be built and I take from that that it has to be a physical temple and a physical city because a, an unconverted man named Cyrus would not have anything to do with building the spiritual temple or spiritual Jerusalem. I, I would take it then, then that it has to be physical and not by the Jews but God's own people. Whatever the Jews do over there is their business. It has no spiritual value or impact.
other than maybe turning some people's heads the wrong direction. So, uh, the book of Nehemiah then <clears throat> addresses the beginnings of the building back of Jerusalem. So if there is such a thing that needs to be done in the end time, and I believe there is, that makes the book of Nehemiah a very good thing for us to study and understand the pattern of things that happened in the past. God wrote them here so that we could read them, understand the pattern, and know what needs to be done, and also some of the problems that will come up, difficulties that will ensue, and how to handle them and the attitudes that we ought to have. So we've already seen Ezra and Zerubbabel and Joshua coming up to build the temple, and we see that story repeated in Haggai and Zechariah, that that has to be done in the end time as a spiritual temple, but now we're also considering it from the standpoint of a physical temple and also physical Jerusalem. Now we've understood for a long time that there has to be a physical Jerusalem built. Zechariah 2, the towns without walls, will be considered Jerusalem. But maybe it is deeper than that. Maybe one of those towns is indeed the original site of the original Jerusalem. And it has to be built as one of them, and it will be destroyed. Because certainly, if there are more than one village or more than one town, uh, the abomination would overspread all of them, all seven. I've come to think it's seven now because of the seven trees in Isaiah 41 and the seven women taking hold of one man in Isaiah 4 and the seven churches of Revelation being an end-time prophecy as well. I'm repeating some things here, but I think since we're starting into the new book here of Nehemiah, it's good to go ahead and review that a little bit so it's firmly in our mind as we start going into this and can consider the understanding of the end-time uh, fulfillment of Nehemiah a little better with it in mind. So, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Cheslu, which is roughly end of November, uh, beginning of December, in the 20th year, uh, that would be of Artaxerxes the king, which we've come to see as Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. As I was in Shushan, the palace, that being the residence of the Persian king. That Hanani, one of my brethren, and the commentaries think that Hanani was probably his physical brother, not just a brother Jew, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So he was in Babylon, and he wanted news of the homeland. These guys came, so he asked them all kinds of questions. What's going on? What needs to be done? How can it be done? What are the problems? How can we help solve them? I don't know what all was discussed, but they probably sat around and discussed it for quite some time uh, because this would have been very much on Nehemiah's mind. He also had knowledge that Ezra had gone back to uh, Jerusalem and that Zerubbabel and Joshua, with the people who were there, the remnant that went back, had helped build the temple. So that was history at this point. Now it was time to rebuild the walls and restore the city. So we see here a pattern that is also true uh, 
as a prophetic thing here at the end. And they said to me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now, looking at this from a spiritual perspective, which certainly I think we should do, uh, since we are Zion and Jerusalem, according to Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, and it's speaking first of all of the church, we look at the church today and realize that it has been destroyed, it has been scattered, uh, there are many, many, many splinter groups, many people have succumbed to spiritual famine, pestilence, and disease, and the sword of others upon them, and no longer spiritually live. They basically died of various spiritual maladies, and that is the condition of the church today. There isn't a great deal left, and what is left is still in confusion, famine, and pestilence, and there is very, very little positive coming out. I know a lot of organizations try to make all kinds of positive announcements, but they are all withering and rotting from within, just as Ezekiel, as Ezekiel 17 said they would, just the way that it is today. And we should be very, very concerned, even as Nehemiah was concerned on a physical level of the physical Jews, we should be deeply concerned about our brethren in the church and ourselves who have been afflicted by this situation and the confusion that has gone on and is still continuing. Even now, over 20 years later, most people still do not even understand what has happened. They don't grasp the reasons, and they're doing nothing about it. It is imperative that we grasp why this has happened. I mean precisely why. Because if you don't know why and how, you will never figure out the solution. Now, Nehemiah gives us a solution, and it is a solution that was entertained by Daniel, which we just addressed briefly. I didn't go into that today, but I did before, and you'll understand in a moment where I'm coming from on that. Let's read on. Verse 4, it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he had been somewhat isolated from Jerusalem being in Babylon himself at Shushan the palace and didn't really have up-to-date news on what was happening. And to a great degree, I think we are that way about the church today. We we hear this, we hear that, but in an overall sense, we don't get up-to-date news every day on everything that's happening throughout all the splinter groups of the church. We might read the journal uh, from time to time, and certainly that'll make you want to weep and cry and fast uh, to see the confusion of doctrine and the confusion of ideas that is out there. It's, it's truly troubling. But what was his reaction when he heard the bad news? It was to turn to God, to weep bitter tears 
over the condition of things. And to mourn certain days and fast and pray. Now isn't that what Daniel did when he recognized that 70 years were up, it was time for God's people to be delivered? What did he do? He fasted and prayed. And you'll find that any time there has been a breaking up of Israel or God's people, that there has to come a recognition of what has transpired, a recognition of what needs to be done, and then a plea to God for forgiveness and mercy to turn our lives around that God might hear and answer. It is always the process. Even in personal sin, if you consider David, he had really messed his life up. He had shattered his reputation in Israel. Uh, he, he just really had a mess on his hands. And when Nathan came and told him that he was the man, he suddenly recognized his personal culpability. It wasn't somebody else's problem. Remember, he came and told him about the man who had only one lamb and somebody took his lamb. He said, that man ought to be killed. And then he was told, you are that man. He had to accept personal responsibility. And I tell you that we must as well. As long as we keep blaming someone else, no one will repent, no one will turn to God with their whole heart, and nothing will be done. But when a people recognizes, as David did, then he began to find the solution. And what did he do? He rent his heart, he rent his garments, he fell on his face and fasted. He prayed. He accepted God's penalty in the matter, the death of the Son. But God also forgave him and used him again. So whether it's an individual as a leader of Israel like David was, or whether it's all Israel or the church, it all, the, the problem always originates with sin, putting other things ahead of God. It always ends, if it's going to end in righteousness, with recognition of who is responsible, repentance of whatever parties might be involved, and then God's forgiveness and a return of blessing. You'll remember I brought that up about Job just recently in terms of how there were accusations back and forth between him and his friends as to who was responsible, and they blamed each other, and so on and so forth, until God finally showed Job how small he was compared to God in heaven and that he was personally responsible. But even then, when he abhorred himself and repented in sackcloth and ashes. That wasn't enough. His thoughts had to turn from himself. And it says, when he prayed for his friends, God returned the blessings. I think that we should be recognizing our sin and the sins of our people, God's people, his called out ones here at the end, and that we should be then praying diligently for our friends out there, not only that we repent, but they as well, and that God return blessing and have mercy upon them. 
we must turn outward, not inward. That's what Job did, and that's when God gave the blessing back. So, as he came to have that emotion, that feeling, that desire, and began to turn to God, here's a prayer he prayed. Verse 5, And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Remember when he gave the Ten Commandments, he said he would have mercy on thousands that served him and kept his commandments. So what Nehemiah does is quotes right back to God things that God has said. He claimed that promise, that you said you would bless and be with those who would obey you and keep your commandments. Let now your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we, not they, but we, including himself, have sinned against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. Now it might be right, to some degree, when different organizations and groups and peoples in the church of God say that you other groups have sinned. That is indeed correct. There is not a group anywhere that has not sinned. So making that accusation against the other churches of God, in effect, is correct. But there's a big however in there. However, if we are going to confess the sins of others, point out the sins of others, we had well better be sure that we include ourselves. Finger pointing does no good unless you are sure that you point your finger at yourself and get your own self straightened out. So I've said many times it's wrong to point the fingers at others, And indeed, that is right, except that in this context, he's praying for forgiveness of the sins of others. He's not just pointing out that somebody else has the problem. He is praying for those people by saying, we have all sinned, including me, forgive all of us. So it's not done in the attitude of pointing out, na 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 you're the problem. It's done with the attitude of you've sinned, I've sinned, we've all sinned, let's all repent, let's all receive the blessings of God through repentance. So it's a matter of attitude with which a finger might be pointed. Attitude is always important. We have dealt very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. His point of reference was only the law of Moses at that point in time. We now have also the New Covenant or the New Testament to add to that and how we have not kept the standard that Christ set for us in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in particular with a Sermon on the Mount where he set very, very high standards. And we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, not just of the law of Moses, 
although Christ incorporated the principles of the law of Moses in the New Testament, it's not that he did away with the law of Moses. He just made it more exacting. He made it more difficult to keep. He made it more far-reaching. Now it included more about attitude and the lust of the eyes and so on as opposed to just actually physically breaking the law. So it is a far stricter standard today when we consider repentance than it was in those days. Although David had spiritual understanding. And when David prayed in Psalm 51, remember he wanted cleansed from the inside out. He wanted his attitudes, his emotions, everything taken into account and purged with hyssop and made clean. So he did understand the attitudinal part of it. Verse 8, Remember, I beseech you, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. So that was ancient history, but what did Nehemiah use it as? He knew that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he knew that those promises had been made, that those cursings had been set, so that if Israel disobeyed, that would happen. I want to go back to Leviticus 26 here for a few moments and read some of this because it not only applied in his day, but we'll see, we will see here that it applies today as well. Let's go to verse 2. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Eternal. He's speaking here as if they knew who he was. Now, we're going to forget who he is in the end time. And then we have scriptures that say, you shall know who I am if you've forgotten. You're going to find out all over again. We've read a lot of that in Ezekiel. Verse 15, Leviticus 26, And if you shall despise my statutes, or if you, your soul abhor my judgments, so that you will not do all my commandments, but you break my covenant, I will also this, do this to you. I will appoint over you terror, consumption, the burning ague, that you consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. We're going to be starving to death while our international neighbors are going to be eating what we have produced. We're right on the edge of that. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues. And if you will not yet for all this hearken to me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power. And I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield her increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. So we've seen that happen in the church, where the fruits have dried up, nothing has been happening, we've had spiritual famine, pestilence, and disease, and death. And now we're beginning to see it physically in our country. I think that the droughts in the east and various parts of the country, the forest fires, the troubles that have now begun to come, 
Hurricane Katrina, and forward are not going to let up anymore. They're just going to get worse and worse and worse. And the financial community and the problems we're having there will not get better, but they will get worse and worse and worse. That so we finally have reached the time where it's not only coming down on the church, but it's coming down on the nation. We've been anticipating this now for quite a few years. We've been preaching it for quite a few years. And now that which we said would happen to the church and had been happening and is continuing to happen has now come upon the physical nation. It won't back off for 10 or 15 or 20 years, maybe, like it has before. This time it is going to intensify and get worse. Now, that's my feeling at the moment. Maybe I'm wrong. But it appears that we've reached that point. <clears throat> we may be finally in the gun lap, <laughs> you know. May have finally come. After Mr. Armstrong saying over and over again, we're in it. Well, he didn't even understand, really, what the final gun lap would be. He understood the prophecies, and from what he could see, it looked like it was coming, but there were a lot of things that hadn't lined up yet. Now it appears they have. But notice he says, and this is, I think, very interesting in verse 31, I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. The congregations, the cities of the church have been made waste, and the, the abomination of desolation probably is not too far off. So, the wording back here is the same as it is in Matthew 24 and in Daniel. And I will bring the land to desolation. Now this is a very, this is a historical record as well. But notice how many times he talks about desolation in here. I think this might tell us something. Your enemies which shall dwell therein shall be astonished at it. The enemies around and that have dwelt among Israel are going to be absolutely astonished when the land is made desolate. Even they would be moved out at some point. And I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Jeremiah 9.11 says that the cities of Judah and Jerusalem will be absolutely desolate without inhabitant and a den of lizards or a habitation of lizards. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, and you be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. There'll be nobody farming it. There'll be nobody there using it. It will enjoy its Sabbaths. They had not been using the land Sabbath. But God said it's going to get its Sabbaths. It'll be desolate. Now, has that ever happened in the Middle East to that Jerusalem? No, it has not. Maybe there's a different Jerusalem that was lost because it was absolutely made desolate and has been enjoying its land Sabbaths all these years while Israel was taken captive. God did tell them at the end of Deuteronomy that if they sinned again, he would take them into Egypt by ship 
2868 or something like that, 2968, whatever it is. Maybe they were taken out of this land that was originally the promised land. And it was left desolate. <clears throat> Heathen were the only ones here. But in particular parts of it, it was totally desolate. And no one lived there. Just a den of dragons. Maybe some of these prophecies back here, these projections became literally true. As long as it lies desolate, shall rest, verse 35, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. And upon them that are left alive of you, I will send a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. So even the ones that are alive and remain and are not killed when it's taken captive will be in foreign lands. The sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them, and they shall flee as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. Verse 39, they that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. And also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. Now notice, if they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary to me, and that I have also walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac and Abraham, will I remember, and I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, while she lies desolate without them, and they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity because even because they despise my judgments. Verse 45, But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So God makes it very clear <clears throat> what he will do and why he does it and then what must be done. Let's go to Deuteronomy 4 in this regard. There's a little more I want to add here. Deuteronomy 4. We are to be very cognizant of all God's words. Verse 2, You shall not add to the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the eternal, your God, which I command you. So we're to be very, very careful. Verse 9, Take heed to yourself, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But teach them to your sons and your sons' sons. Verse 24, For the eternal, your God, is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. He doesn't just sit back and, oh, well, I guess that's okay. He's jealous. We're his people, the apple of his eye. And when we start casting our eyes at the lovers of this world, he does not like it at all. He becomes a fire of jealousy. 
That's why he tells us to depart from the world and have no fellowship of the world, not to be friends with the world. If we insist on doing that, we will continue to incur God's wrath because he is a jealous God. We must depart from this world. If you you think for a moment that you can be a friend of man, a friend of this world, and a friend of God, you are wrong. It simply cannot be done. Christ said in so many words, you can't be a friend of me and of the world. A man cannot serve two masters. Either serve me or serve the world. Don't try to straddle the fence. But a lot of God's people are trying to straddle the fence today. If you do it, you're letting some of God's words fall to the ground. That's all I can say. Verse 29. Well, let's go on down. I want to read a little bit more here. Um, If you continue to make the gods of this world your gods, verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land, for until you go over Jordan to possess it. Doesn't he tell us that if we are not accounted worthy to escape when the abomination of desolation is set up, that Satan will go after the remnant of her seed and destroy them, those who are left behind, utterly destroyed. The Eternal shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, where the Eternal shall lead you. And there you shall serve gods, the works of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if from there you shall seek the eternal your God, you shall find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Jeremiah quotes this, Jeremiah 29, 13, I think it is, where he says, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. It can't be a half-hearted attempt. The reason he scattered us in the first place, right in Revelation 3, because we were of a divided heart. We compromised God, we took him for granted, and were lackadaisical about it. And he just simply cannot abide the idea of marrying a bride who is ho-hum about the whole thing. We'll give God our sleepy time prayers, but we'll do the things we want to do. That is not wholeheartedness, and it is not acceptable. Would you marry a boy or a girl that kept saying, well, you know, I don't know, I I like you quite a bit, but boy, there's this other one. I I sure like that one, too. And and that, oh, there's another one over here. I really like that one, too. Oh, i got to decide. If somebody is in that much of a quandary about whether they want to marry you or somebody else, isn't it about time you lit a shuck out of there? They're going to be that ambivalent about it. Christ is that way. He says, I want your whole heart to be with me or I won't marry you. And if your heart isn't with me and you're the ones that I've chosen to marry, I'm going to heat your heart up. I'll do it through refining through fire, 
through trouble, through tribulation. You won't take me for granted anymore. You'll either get on the bandwagon and go all the way with me, or you'll depart from me and go with your other lovers. There's not going to be any halfway in between. Do you understand a little more why he says don't have fellowship with the world? You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. It cannot be done. You may think you can pull it off, but God says otherwise. Now, do you believe your emotions or do you believe what God says? You simply cannot serve two masters. You'll love one or the other. You have to make a choice. You have to determine which will it be. Christ will not have anything in between. Just That's bottom line. If you seek him with your, all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things are come upon you, even in the latter days, if you turn to the eternal your God and shall be obedient to his voice. So this admonition goes right through unto the latter days. It has just as much application, perhaps more, today than it ever did, because this is the final cut, the final countdown, the final ceiling of the 144,000 in the next few years. It's the culmination of all the prophecies, all the scripture ever written. We are living in those days. For the eternal your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you, neither destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. That is, if you turn to him with your whole heart. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask from the one side of heaven to the other, whether there has been any such thing as this great thing is, or has been heard like it. Things we're learning right now. There has never been such like before. God is going to create some new things that we have not even heard of here at the end. He promised that in Isaiah. Okay? See what attitude God is looking for? See where Nehemiah looked back to? When he began to make this prayer, he looked back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So he said, verse 8, remember, back in Nehemiah 1, remember I beseech you the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. We just went back and reviewed that. And I think that's important for us to do, because when Nehemiah found himself in a time when God's people were in confusion and frustration, that's where he went back to. And when he went back there, he found that it talks about the latter days. Now, whether he comprehended what that meant or not, I don't know. But I think you and I do. And it's talking about today. But if you turn to me and keep my commandments, we just read this, and do them, Though there were of you cast out to the uttermost parts of the heaven, yet will I gather them from there 
and will bring them to the place that I have chosen to set my name there. So he says, it doesn't matter if you've been scattered into outer space. I'll find you, and I'll bring you right back where I've set my name. He has said he would set his name. We can go back to Deuteronomy 12 here a moment. Deuteronomy 12. Verse 5. But to the place which eternal your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even to his habitation shall you seek, and there shall you come. So God's going to choose a place out of all the nations of Israel. Uh, in the end time, which nation did he choose? Chose this nation, America. He put Herbert Armstrong or called him in Oregon, moved him immediately almost to Southern California where there was broadcast capability and so on. So the place that he began building his church in the end time was in the southwestern United States. That should be clear to all of us. I think we should be making this connection. This is where he chose to start his end time work. And I suspect that is where he will also finish it. Maybe not Pasadena particularly, because he does tell us. He, you know, when God changes something, he makes it known, doesn't he? So he sent, as Ezekiel 17 shows in that parable and riddle, his man, his leader, to a land of traffic and merchants, Los Angeles, specifically Pasadena. And then when that temple fell apart, those who would come later and finish the work, build the latter temple, he told to leave the cities and go dwell in the desert, in the wilderness. So God modified it from what Herbert Armstrong did by saying, after that happens, then go to the desert and the wilderness and the mountains, and there you will be delivered. So he modified the plan somewhat for the end time, the very end time people. And I think that he has not changed the location. He's not changed the nation. He chose, whether this be Ephraim or whether it be Manasseh, this land, to begin his work in the end time. He will not change tribes at this point. It will also be done in this land. But it will not be done in the cities. It will be done in the mountains, deserts, and wilderness. Quick, grab yourself a, ma a map of America and find out where the mountains, deserts, and wilderness are and look for a likely place among those. That's where it's going to be. Most of the desert region is in the southwest. There's a little bit of desert up in Washington and Oregon, northern Nevada. Uh, so better look at all of them, I suppose. I certainly did when I began looking for whether, where to, whether to come here or not. I even, I've been in all those places, but I even drove into eastern Washington and Oregon and looked around. I don't know that I've told you that, but I had done so. To be sure. 
of the greatest desert, mountains, and wilderness area that fit the configuration is in the southwest. And I don't think that's any chance that it would be in this tribe of Israel and in this particular part of the country. Anyway, let's go on here. He'll choose one of the tribes, a place to put his name there, verse 5, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the heave offerings of your hand, your vows and your freewill offerings, and the first wings of your herds and of your flocks. And there you shall eat before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand to, you and your households, wherein the eternal your God has blessed you. Now, we, we think we can put God's name wherever we want to put it. That's what God says. says he's going to place his name. You shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. So this was being written at a time when Israel was pretty well saying, I'll do whatever I damn well please, to put it in modern slang. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I will do whatever is right in my eyes. That was not a good time in Israel's history at all. Nor is it a good time today. God has always set leaders. He set Herbert Armstrong. He's going to set leaders at the end. And you will either do what they do, go where they go, and listen to what they say, and do it, or you will not. You can make that choice. And you will either be blessed by God where they go and where they walk and do what they do, or you will be cut out and go into the tribulation. God makes it very plain. So if you insist on doing your thing, you will find that your thing will lead you to famine, pestilence, disease, and death. So I won't tell you you can't do your thing. You can. But I can tell you what will happen if you do. We have a generation today in the church which every man does whatsoever is right in his own eyes. And this is a really, really bad time in God's church, isn't it? got to change. We must all look to the leadership that God is going to send or we are going to be left out in the cold. I don't care what you've thought all your life. I don't care what you've been taught in America. It really doesn't matter. All I care is what God says. We either accept the way God is doing it or we decide to do it our way. And it won't work. Verse 9, For you are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the eternal your God gives you. The time when we are doing what is right in our own eyes is not the time that God said he will bless and give us the rest and peace that he promises in Isaiah 54, 55, and many other scriptures. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the eternal your God gives you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell safely, then there shall be a place which the eternal your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. 
So we have to look for a place where God has placed His name. There shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which you vow to the eternal. It's ought to be done this way. can't be done any other way. And you shall rejoice before the eternal your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your men servants, your manservants, the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he has no part nor inheritance, take heed to yourself that you offer not your burnt offerings in every place that you see, which you decide to go to. Got to do it where God says. We, we're not free to choose that place and what God has chosen. All right, let's go back to Nehemiah. I think it is very revealing that at a time of reform, at a time when there was great trouble, Nehemiah went back to these scriptures, which they themselves declared to be for the latter days. So the scattering we're seeing in the church has its same sources and was foretold in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. So God is going to himself set his name somewhere. His name is identified with and has been set in Jerusalem and Zion. The question, I guess, to be determined is where is the real Zion and where is the real Jerusalem? Is it in the Middle East, or is it somewhere else? Is it where God is doing his final work spiritually with his church, or is it somewhere else? I think the next months and years will tell us that. And as we determine that, we have to act accordingly. Now, Cyrus is going to come to God's people. Where are they? There are none of God's people in the Middle East, Jerusalem. There are a very few, maybe in the fives, tens, or a dozen, or two, or three, who have gone there thinking that the prophecies would be fulfilled there. So I won't say there are no converted people there today. I don't know that God ever called any there. Maybe there was an individual or two or three. But he certainly has not done a great work there in this end time. He chose the tribe of Ephraim or Manasseh, whichever this tribe is right here in America today. This is where he's done his work. I believe this is where the Cyrus will appear, is in this land, and that he will finish his work where he has placed his name in this tribe. Could it then follow that the original cradle of civilization was here? and that the physical temple and physical Jerusalem must also be built here. I can back that up with an awful lot of information now, but we don't have time at this moment. But he will show his end-time leaders the place that he has chosen to set his name. Verse 10, Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power. Who are the redeemed today? Those who are part of his church who are being chosen are the ones being redeemed from this world and given over to Christ as his bride. 
by your great power and by your strong hand. O Eternal, I beseech you, let your own ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. We had come to the point we didn't fear it. We were ho-hum. We were lackadaisical. We were Laodicean. We thought we were okay and didn't realize we were naked and blind. And now we desire to fear God's name, but it doesn't come easy, does it? We have to go through trial, through trouble, through tribulation, through refining, through scattering, through all kinds of problems until we truly begin to fear his name. The desire is within us. I believe that. But to truly fear him the way he wishes to be feared can still escape us very easily if we're not careful. Those who desire to fear your name and prosper, I pray you, your servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So... He needed help to do what it was that he saw needed to be done. He saw the trouble at Jerusalem. We see the trouble in the church today, don't we? And it hurts us. So we should be going to God and praying for the church. But God will turn his face and shine upon it, not just you and me, but all his faithful remnant, And sadly, 90% are going to go into the tribulation. And that should hurt us. That should make us pray. Remember, Job prayed for his friends, and then his blessing came. It turned from self to an outreach. And if we have been involved with ourselves, we need to turn in our attitudes and an outreach to others through our prayer, through our fasting, through our study and try to help them. Try time is it? I'm almost done, aren't I? doesn't seem like we're able to get through more than one chapter uh, per time. I intended to get through two today, but we're almost to that time, so I'm going to stop right there. But I, I think there's an awful lot of background that needs to be laid in terms of who we are and what we have to do and that this historical record has a great deal of bearing upon it. So bear with me as I lay some background here. Uh, If God is going to build Jerusalem back, it was a desolate place. And the reason it was caused to become desolate was because of sin. And if we are going to be used to rebuild Jerusalem, then we must be clean. Because if we bear the vessels of the eternal... We have to be different than those people that he destroyed it because of. I think that becomes bottom line and very, very important to us to grasp that he's not going to turn his vessels over to people that won't be clean. And I think it should give us a great deal of added impetus to come to be honest with ourselves about our attitudes and our sins and our problems and not lean to our own understanding, but look at these things of God and realize that he wants a bride that is beautiful, that is virgin, that is clean, that is not like this world. Now, it doesn't matter what we've done, what we've been in the past. The church at Corinth was probably as morally loose and lax as any group 
that God called into the church in the early New Testament. And yet Paul looked upon them as chaste virgins, clean, pure virgins, washed in the blood of Christ. So it doesn't matter what our sins have been. It's do we repent and change and overcome and come under the blood of Christ and be washed clean, clean of those sins so that he can look upon us from his perspective as clean, pure virgins to marry his son. And the only way that that can be is through his sacrifice of his godliness that we might be cleansed in his blood. So we don't need to live in guilt of the past, whatever it might have been in our lives. We just need to change it and be different and not go that way anymore and trust him that in his mind we're clean, even though it's hard for us maybe to forget our past sins. We need to forget the past ones and move forward, and we need to address the current ones and change them so we can be a part of what God is going to do here at the end. That's the bottom line for us, and that's what Daniel saw it, it's what Nehemiah saw it, it's what Ezra saw it, it's what anyone at a time of restitution of God's blessing, if you want to go to Acts 3, and the restitution of all things. That should be the attitude we have if we're seeking restitution.